0: What's up, Story Geeks? It's Jay and Daryl. On today's show, we're going to dig deeper and deeper in a third dream layer of deep (laughs) into Inception. Yes, we are.
1: We've been wanting to do this one for a long time and we've got a really exciting guest for this one. We have one of the performers from the movie itself. Um, We have actor Dilip Rao, who played the role of Yusuf, the chemist. Mm -hmm. So we were very excited to get to talk to him and his insight on this movie. And just life in general is really, really cool. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode.
0: Yeah, he digs deeper with us into thoughts about reality and how dreams affect reality and storytelling. It's a really, really fun conversation. We also love to hear your thoughts about Inception, which you can share with us over at thestorygeeks.com. That's where you can find all our other content, podcasts, aftercasts, and in-depth articles and blog posts from Ashley Pauls and Anthony Holder. If you're looking for more fun, but deeply meaningful geek content, head on over to www.thestorygeeks.com. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to our email
1: list. That way you know when we've published new content and when we're looking for you to vote on geek top 10 lists. That's right. We do top 10 lists and we ask for our community to give input.
0: So we want your vote to count yeah absolutely you can also become a premium supporter and get access to special rewards like audiobooks, writer commentaries and our aftercast wherein we dig deeper into today's topic in fact on today's aftercast which we're gonna make free for you guys for a week and we talk to Deleep a little bit more about his specific role in Inception and in other things that he's done that's right All kind of geek stuff. So head on over to thestorygeeks.com for more information and to subscribe to that email list.
1: Yes. So coming up next week on the show, we are going to be celebrating Halloween. We're going to be talking about our top five Halloween moments in geekdom. And we did that with our good pals, Justin Weaver and Sandra Demas. And then coming up the week after that, we're going back to the Star Wars land. We're going to try and make (laughs) Solo better. And we're going to be doing that with Shannon McCarter and Alex Leonis. So yeah. Which would be fun, but we both like solo. We do, but it can be better. Anything can, can be, be better. better. Yeah, why not? I mean, it's a fun conversation whether you like it or not. That's true. So be sure to click the subscribe button so you don't miss those
0: episodes coming up. Yeah, you got to subscribe for those. Also, thanks for listening in. The Story Geeks podcast is produced by the Reclamation Society. Let's dig deeper into Inception.
1: All right, everybody, welcome to today's episode. We are going to be digging deeper into Inception, and we have a very exciting guest with us today. We have one of the stars of the film itself, as well as other films such as Avatar and Drag Me to Hell and a whole host of other great work. We have Dalip Rao. Deleep, thanks for joining us today.
2: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. So, we are going to dig deeper into Inception. You've probably talked about this movie quite a bit over the last eight <laughs> or nine years, haven't you?
2: Yeah, it, it definitely is a topic people like to talk about. <laughs> and I do, yeah. too, actually. It's a great movie. so.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, we're just going to kind of dive in and dig into some of the themes and some of the story points here. Sure. Um, so, let's go for it. So, go ahead. Um, obviously, the movie is about dreaming. It's about dreams within dreams and what happens when we dream and how can we control those dreams and how can we inform them. So really quickly as we dive in just as kind of a high level, why do we dream and why is it still somewhat of a mystery to us? Well, so, I think,
2: it, you know, in answering that, we should be humble enough to note that everyone's been asking this question since, you know, the phenomenon of human consciousness has begun. So <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think we're going to break <laughs> that, that barrier uh, right here, right now. But, you know, I think that it's why we dream is a huge mystery because sleep is still a huge mystery, right? Like we feel tired. We need to sleep. Everyone needs to sleep. Everyone sleeps at least a little bit. Uh, every night and if you don't sleep for a very long time you probably won't survive as we know medically but dreaming it seems to be a phenomenon that's not unique to us we see dogs dream and, and many other animals dream and we can see it in their brain activity I think the thing it's a mystery to us because the more profound question is I don't think we know how the brain works right uh, I think one of the great illusions of modernity is we think because we've made machines and computers that work kind of like thinking that we know what thinking is but i don't think we know anything about thinking i think we're still like groping you know groping and grasping in the dark about things that are so deeply unknown to us both in process method and structure you know we just barely have the brain like mapped out and most of that map may be completely wrong it's arbitrary right it's like amerigo vespucci going this is north america you know mm. and you're like okay well what about central america oops so <laughs> you know i i don't i think the main question you're asking is one of it is humility it's knowing that you know science is You know, one of my favorite subjects in the world and one of the greatest, um, I think, tenets of science is that it knows what it doesn't know, and when it fails, it admits it, and when it gets it wrong, it says so. And I think we have to be really honest and humble about the fact that we just don't know how it works, and we still have this huge mystery about ourselves. And a lot of the stories we tell, a lot of the things we're asking about right here are about why we are the way we are. We're here for this brief period. We have a lot of notions about ourselves, what we want, what we desire, but I don't know that we know that much about that truly. We have notional ideas, and then you know, we suppose them into our lives, and many people live with their lives as if they're fundamentally true. But a lot of these things are our convictions, and they may or may not be actually true, and we're still trying to learn what those things mean. So the mystery persists because it's a, it, it is the delving into how we are who we are.
1: Yeah, for sure. What do you think, Jay?
0: Oh, I completely agree. I think it's fascinating that we just don't know. It's fascinating that when there's still things that are a mystery because today in science we know we do know a lot and I think Dalip is 100% correct in that we think we know more than we actually know yeah and it's it's one of those things where uh, we know that dreams are important but we we're not exactly sure why and we know that they're important because as you look at like Take any kind of spiritual perspective you see. A lot of them have put emphasis on dreams, whether dreams are like visions, whether they're like interpretations of your emotional state, whatever it is. We see that we, there there's an emphasis on dreams. There's an emphasis on interpretation of dreams and what that means. Um, but I, I think you know they they still remain a mystery. And I think one of the things that uh, that we're learning a lot about the brain now. And I only say this as a writer, so again. It's more of like what I know about writing more so than I know about <laughs> dreams or the science of them. But I know that neuroscience is now saying that, you know, uh, and I've said this on the podcast before, but we understand and interpret the world via storytelling, storytelling, not like random data points, but an actual storytelling and dreams are partially the way that our brain creates stories, I think about how the world works so that we, the next morning when we wake up, we can process some of the things that we've dealt with.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I just think I, right now, like what we should talk about is that we are all, both of us doing like the thing we both love to do. What we, I was just saying a minute ago is that we're notionalizing it, right? Like I think one of the things we can all talk about, I, I very much share your perspective. I think one of the things that's very difficult to understand about the human experience is that it's constantly narrativizing and it's narrating it. You are the narrator in your cognitive mind of -hmm. the data points that are being inputted through your sensory brain and then through your self-perception of your cognitive self, right? And those mysteries that are so weird to us are that our stories, they're confined to us, that we're the hardware and the software at the same time. And so the story is running on the hardware while it's the software. And what's terrible about that is it can both inspire and lift you but it can also hurt you and depress you and, and make you think things that are true about yourself or the world that aren't true you know i think can, you can delude yourself so easily because the story making as you said correctly i think is the core well, we don't want to admit it but there's a very fictive hand on who we think we are mm-hmm. and we all think we're kind of objectively positive as who we should be and you know dreaming i i think that one of the funniest things about dreaming because obviously if you read freud on dreams they're you know, sometimes they're very significant and sometimes they're not. But it could all be insignificant, too. It could all be like, <laughs> oh, that's just that's just what happens when you have a cognitive apparatus that's turned off, right, quote unquote. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I don't I don't know. The, uh, you know, again, uh, I, I love the talking about this because it really is about what we've been doing around a fire for thousands and thousands of years. But again, it's notional. Like, I, I don't think we, we there's a barrier to our knowledge of ourselves. I don't think it's like quantum mechanics where it's like, oh, we can't ever know. Right we probably at some point will understand the language of ourselves better. Just like one day we might learn how to speak dolphin. But I I, I don't know that it's like something that we're supposing into ourselves right now or that we're correcting our guess, you know?
1: Yeah, I think there's a mechanical problem to it too. Like in the film, it would Mm. seem that there's obviously more control over what the dream looks like and certainly more recall of the experience of the dream itself. Mm. Whereas in reality, at least for me, I can never fully recall what I dreamt. Like, right, I right. can remember pieces of it, but certainly not enough to sit down and study in any reasonable way.
2: I mean, it's I think though people I, I you know, I'm not I've dreamed pretty I, I don't know, it's, I have pretty strong notions of my dreams are pretty good surmisings of what they are when i when i have dreams but they're not always like that i i think there are people who claim to or may i it's again it's very difficult to subjectively understand what they're saying cognitively but some people say they train themselves to dream more lucidly or more clearly and they have those experiences but they're self-reported right so who knows whether they're actually baseline level true but that one of the things in the dreams in the movie is that they needed to make the narrative structure stronger so that the movie would be palpable to the audience, right? Sure. And if it didn't work that way, then it wouldn't be... You could do a really arty film that's like that, right? And some there's a movie called What Dreams, what dreams May Come that's quoting oh, I love that movie. Yeah, well, there's parts of that movie that are attempting really deeply to do that kind of surrealist bend in a mainstream picture, you know? And there are art, way bigger art films and way more important art films that have done that kind of thing. I just don't know if, in terms of what Chris was going for, that it would have worked to make it quite, it was pretty surreal as it was, right? For a mainstream movie, there are things in Inception that are quite surreal and quite uncanny. It's just, I think he was very uh, smartly able to teach the audience what the geography of what to expect was.
1: Yeah. Mm And he obviously had a very complicated story to tell within the within that yeah. context too. So, <laughs> right. yeah, it is a heist picture, right? Yeah, so there is that
2: inside <laughs> of it too, right? So it's not just like let me experience a kind of Freudian um, Dali world that posits what your internal, you know, imagery and and, and surrealist sensual understandings are. I, there is that stuff, like when the you know the street folds and Paris goes on its side and the 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 sort of um, the, the enemies they face and how they appear and where they are and those things are very you know they are kind of uncanny in that way and he did do a lot of that at the at the uh, the texture level of the movie I thought and I thought that was really smart
0: sure yeah I do think it's interesting too that that there's the idea that it is through a dream state or through the subconscious that ideas can be planted because that's part of the whole concept, right? Like, right. It's not because if it was if it, if it wasn't that way, it wouldn't be probably a very compelling movie. There has to be a, like we have to do something. Oh yeah. sure, like, um, sure. And the cool thing about that is I myself have woken up from dreams and been like. Like, for example, you, you had you had an argument with somebody at work in your dream and you wake up the next morning and you're like, D- is that person a jerk or is that person yeah. like there there is a subtle suggestion that your brain was at least dealing oh, yeah. with the topic,
2: right? Oh, like- yeah. I think that the genius of that is that he completely understands that we are we are utterly vulnerable to the origin of the dream, right? Like, like you wake up and you're like, I have no idea where that came from. I I, I literally don't even, I've never been there. Those people have never been with me. I don't know what's happening, right? Like those, that vulnerability you have to that is an incredible advantage for the storyteller who wants to make the, uh, the quote unquote inception. You know, the, the concept of dropping the idea that begins the ripple in your cognitive mind that is, Something that arises and you think it, we're vulnerable to those things. I also think, you know, just like we're talking a minute ago about like our dream significant, there's I don't think there's anybody who's like they're 100% insignificant, right? Everyone's like something happened there. What was that experience, right? Yeah. And it does by you thinking about it, like you were saying, the brain works in a storytelling way. You're telling a story. You've included that into your story in a way you can't undo. So I do think that's fascinating.
1: Yeah, and obviously we're very impacted by them because I I know for me. If I have a dream about any level of harm coming to one of my sons, yeah, oh my can, god, that ruins my whole day. Yeah, I'm like, course. this this day is dark and gloomy, and it sucks, and I'm depressed. Right. But nothing happened, you know. Right,
2: I mean, it isn't a huge part of that that. That's a fear you 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 kind of have to not think about most of your day so you can live because otherwise you'd be in a corner with your kids just huddled up with a knife oh,
1: for sure. Right? Yes.
2: so like when that happens, it's like you're vulnerable like I think this is one of the things about modern living and especially our cultural ideas, but this is true of many cultures too, is that we need to be invulnerable. We need to be able to, like, you know, be stronger and better or something. And I, I think that the, the vulnerability we have in dreaming, like I was saying earlier, is that we can't control where these ideas come from. and suddenly, we have to dwell on a topic or a feature or something where you feel deeply, uh, you know, unable to control and that freaks us out.
1: Yeah. Okay. Let me throw another question out here. So obviously in the film, you play Yusuf, the chemist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's the scene where we get to see his dream room where over 40 people come to dream and the caretaker says they don't come to sleep. They come to be woken up. Who are we to say what right. reality is? Right. So how does that statement strike you? What do you think of that concept?
2: i think it's poetic and i think it's uh it's you know it 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 basically suggests something i think we realize as we get a little bit older after you've kind of you know if you use freudian or or psychological terms like you're a child you're kind of this tabula rasa we all experience some sort of trauma minor major devastating whatever you reconfigure yourself as an adolescent you go through sexual awakening you go through this process of constructing your adult self and most of the time you know you're mind state is like between 15 and 18 and that kind of is where you are evolving as a kind of like shivering little adult the rest of your life (laughs) and and the construct of your mind is the thing that makes you able to kind of withstand all the vulnerability and the fear you know and most of i would say most people because we all don't have the time or pressed, and we live in a world that doesn't support much of it but we all live in a kind of process version of negotiating that 15 to 18 year old um, assembled adult into a, the demands of the adult world and it is a, a fear-based way of living and I think most people do that most days you kind of have some relief from it you see your spouse you see your loved ones there is some form of, of growth from that stuff but I think you know most spiritual experiences people have had have talked about being able to accept yourself as a vulnerable person and not living in that fear not because you've conquered it but because you accept your vulnerability in the non-controlling nature of the universe and you yourself can live in that moment and be there fully, you know. And that is an incredibly dangerous thing to do if you've experienced all the things most people experience. And I think he's talking about waking up from your everyday, the callous you have to carry to the world mm. to live as a fear-based person, which most people are, you know. And I include myself in that I think most people are. And trying to be like the Buddha is not exactly easy, but trying to maybe incorporate some of that, making peace with that is is the dream allows them to be vulnerable It lets them journey into a place where they can literally posit whatever they want to have happen. And in the movie, there's a suggestion, you know, like that you become a much more controlling actor under the drugs influence. Right. The pharmacological concept is it lets you take better control of the narrative of structure of your dreams. And I think that has gigantic implications for like self-possession. Right. That's Mm -hmm. what I think he's talking about is you get to control and possess yourself and be your own creation with a with a better input than just your fear center
0: yeah Mm. what do you think jay well it's certainly an interesting question in a world where we like to say that we're woke (laughs) right (laughs) Um, Right. i think that's kind of an interesting concept but i think that reality is a tricky thing to define and we we talked about this a little bit we talked about this a little bit in our ready player one podcast because we talked about the concept of being in alternate universes being in alternate worlds and escapism yeah and the problem is that that you are actually experiencing those things i listen to joe rogan podcast all the time and i'm not into psychedelics but joe rogan's very into psychedelics
2: and he's a lot of people are and a lot of very intelligent interesting people are starting to talk a lot more about it so exactly
0: exactly and you it's very clear that they are experiencing their brain is experiencing something Right. Oh yeah. So when oh, we talk yeah. about reality, it's it's an interesting thing because if you ask Joe Rogan, he's going to say, "Well, I've seen alternate realities in the in the form of lucid dreams under the influence of different psychedelic sure. drugs." I would say, "Well, I think I've experienced things in the spiritual realm." Right. So there, there's these things that we say, like, "Well, that's part of reality." So reality becomes very difficult to define. If you're playing a video game, are you not in a reality? No, you're in a reality. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that um, it's, a, it's a really interesting conversation. I, I mean,
2: I think what you're asking, uh, what you're hinting at there, which is an awesome question, is that at what degree of subsummation, at what degree of your own conviction do you have to feel it for it to have a profound impact on you, right? Like playing a video game, there's a larger percentage of your being that knows you're not actually in the TV, right? right? <laughs> but if you get to a place where VR or pharmaceuticals or some combination of thereof uh, start to make the experience so subsuming and so... Autonomous to ourselves that our own detection is impossible, or at least it is is a minority participant um I I think This again is like I think it's a really hard thing to talk about because it's about people's Self-control and it's it can make people very angry But I think a lot of what we call reality is subjective cognitive experience we have and most people don't want to say wait That gets that's malleable, right? Like I think we can all feel powerful powerful emotional realities that are not necessarily real Right? Like right. they're real to us, but there's no way that anyone around you would be like, that is true. Right? Like, <laughs> and, and I think that we can all say, honestly, we've had those experiences. I think, you know, being in love with someone is one of the most delightful experiences anyone can, anyone can have. Uh, and I, I, I treasured that in my life. But we all know, I mean, poetry's talked about it, stories talked about it. It is a kind of delusion that opens a gap in you that allows you to do some things that would be outside of your own self-interest, right? Mm-hmm. But it's in the interest of humanity, you know? And I think that we, we are uh, really loath to admit that we are capable of having completely real experiences to ourselves because they're very real to us, but they may not be shared. And our if when we, once we accept that our reality might not be shared, I think it's very freaky to most people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, to put to to kind of to um, tie that up in a bow, have you guys seen the show Brain Games on Netflix? No. Okay, no. Uh,
2: a
1: couple episodes, I think. Yeah, it's a
0: fantastic it's show because like it's really stuff, fun. Right? Yeah, puzzles and stuff, but it's about the way that your brain works yeah. and about how your brain is often tricked into yep. operating in a specific way that it doesn't intend to. Yeah. But optical they, illusions and whatnot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They have a show on. Uh, they have a show on memory and they, they have an event happen, and then they get a group of people together to see if people can, can remember the event. And what it, what it basically shows you, and this is actually, this is not just a show on Netflix, this, this research has been widely done. Your memory is completely unreliable. Totally. And not only that, people can change your memory by giving you alternate versions of the same story that you thought you saw and experienced and you thought you were (laughs) confident in. You were actually completely wrong because you'll say that guy had a black shirt. The guy who stole the purse had a black shirt. But if somebody comes in and goes, you know what? I remember a red shirt. Guess what your memory does? It fills in the pieces of the story that it thinks it needs to have. And pretty soon you remember that that guy was wearing a red shirt. He was never wearing a red shirt. When you see it in movie quotes and stuff too, right? Like everybody remembers, "Do you feel
1: lucky, punk?" Yeah, but that's, right. not, the that's not the quote. That's not how it goes. And it's like yeah.
2: the more people repeat the like, like, play it again, Sam. Right? Same thing. It's like people. The more that culturally penetrates is the lie. It's that great statement, right? A lie gets halfway around the world before the truth can gets, get its pants on. Like that is <laughs> that, that is like a thing because. I mean, this is a theory of memory, and no one, again, understands completely how our memory works. But there's a pretty strong indicative um, experimental basis, or at least at least an empirical basis, for the fact that people, when they remember, they rewrite it, right? You rewrite the memory as you remember mm-hmm. it, and you have this cognitive interaction with the memory that then brings it into your mind, and then that process restores it in whatever way it does. And I mean, that just obviously makes you so prone to suggest- suggestibility and cueing that. I, I would suggest that we should all be a lot more careful of what we think we know. And, you know, like we just went through this in this national nightmare of the Kavanaugh hearing at whatever side you think, you know, you think you're on or you are on or how you see that. Um, for me, it was like, are we really we're going to have a tribal, quote unquote, factual war about memories. Right. And people are up here talking about what they remember. And then we're all like so sure that we're just gonna like punch each other in the face about it, and <laughs> I, I, I just I, it felt embarrassing at some level. as just humans to be like we're gonna believe this. This is a thing. Like this, what what just happened here is it reality? We, we think this is real, you know. And it really is just a kind of like bad theater. And I think sometimes memory is like that. It makes us, you know, vociferously defend what we think we remember. And there's no question we think we remember it. But like you said, red shirt, black shirt. Was there even a guy?
0: yeah exactly exactly that and that's i think that that's i think what the what that for me as a storyteller what that does is it says what's more important than the not maybe not more important it is really important to get the actual facts like you're saying because like when we don't have those it's impossible and how can we become tribal if we don't have the actual facts but one of the more important things to do is to go, okay, in the absence of being able to get actual facts, let's look at the narratives that we're telling one another are true, mm-hmm. and let's determine if those narratives are actually true or what is good <laughs> or bad about those narratives. And at least then we can have a conversation about the stories that we believe and the, and the way that we build truth in our own minds.
2: Well, um, I think I just what is so cool about what you just said is that it's when we just slightly depart those realms that like we get to really like have a quick flash about ourselves right mm. like what we call like surrealism in films sometimes is just a kind of questioning of our sensory input versus our cognitive input right usually most films are they're married together 100 of the time in lockstep but like think about like people like David Lynch or even something like as simple as Rashomon which is not even simple it's actually an act of genius but like it, it Rashomon particularly undermines the idea of remembered truth right and perspective and how you're just stuck looking at the world the way you look at it. And when you have these surreal experiences in movies and David Lynch and Kubrick are two people that come to mind that do it so well, I think I'm having like a visual cortex storytelling experience while my cognitive mind is sort of not able to find the next handhold. And that is hinting at something that's more profound about how I'm telling myself the story all the time. And I think that's like, as storytellers, we're, we're, we're always, most of the time, we're locking the things together. Everything's locked in one discrete quantum beat at a time. Uh, Image, uh, sound, emotional beat, whatever. But as we cut through on the slight dissonances we can make that are significant and contribute to the story, those tiny little dissonances are like these grenades that help us penetrate deeper into the emotional and narrative mind of the audience. If if we do it responsibly and we do it with care and and a, a sense of artistic integrity, I think we can reach them more deeply i think that's part of inception the power i think part of why people love inception i mean they love it and i think th- they'll talk about it, it's so cool or like i like the actors or i like the way it looks and there's a lot of movies that have tried to look like that there's a lot of movies that kind of looked like it before maybe even or tried to make that kind of movie but i think it's the reason why people love it is that there is a imaginative leap that says the story in this thing is happening inside a story in this thing, inside the story in this thing, inside perhaps the mind of this person, that person, and the elemental reality is this person is doing all this for this deeply personal emotional journey that he wants to complete. And that I think that resonates so deeply with people on their own experience of themselves. I think that's why that movie is so powerful as it speaks to that that internal need to define one's own self that way. Mm, yeah, yeah that's really good
1: and I think that's one of the reasons that I'm such a big fan of Nolan as a whole is most of his stories seem to have some element where there's something very fantastical but he finds a way to relate it to you yeah. to where you just fully accept it and you're good to go mm, <laughs> yeah. it's one of my favorite things about him um, so in the film Cobb says an idea can either define or destroy you so um, let's talk a little bit about that. Do we think that's true? It definitely seems true for him in the story.
2: I, I um, mean, the, lo- the, the word in that line, can, sort of makes it 100% true. <laughs> right, it can, yeah. Right? <laughs> um, I, I think one of the great applications of that are one of the most um, clear examples of it right now is our, our political reality. You know, an idea can define and destroy you. I think that's what... The cultural divide. This country is more divided than I've ever remembered it being. And historically, in yeah. reading, it up you know up until Buchanan's presidency, it was right right around then. It felt like that. I think then it was more substantively about slavery. I think now it's it's about race a little, but I think it's also just about cultural antipathy and also just it is about a lot of things we're talking about. It's about I, an idea can define you. People have defined themselves as being in these two tribes, we all know where we would run in you know at the minute we get called, <laughs> what camp we're gonna run into and. The other side is all the reasons America sucks or what's wrong with America is the other side and and that can destroy you. I think that it, if an idea becomes the defining reality of yourself, it will destroy you because you're reducing the incredible complexity and the million shades of gray that actually are the world into a kind of hammer and nail dichotomy where you're the hammer and everything you don't like is a nail and that ruins our humanity. It corrodes the nature of who we are and if we become insistive like that, an idea can destroy you. I mean, look at how many people have been obsessed with dumb things. And right now, I would say this thing is a political obsession about identity and self-triumph, right? Or tribal mm-hmm. tribal triumph. And you, you can't win unless everyone else loses. It's like, you know, you have to, like, stand on the, on the mountain atop uh, the bodies of your enemy, you know? But, you know, how many people have had an idea or a notion of the world that's just destroyed their whole life? Like, if only that man loved me. Oh, God, if only that man loved me, right? Or if I could only paint better than that dummy, right? Then the whole life is just about trying to see when you're going to cross some threshold where you appreciate and love yourself, you know, or I don't know, like, there are so many stupid ideas that have done that, like, you know, communism as implemented in the Soviet Union, it almost destroyed the entire earth, right? Mm. So, or, or, or our antipathy to it, you could say that if you're on the other side or whatever, right? I don't want to be like, you know, chauvinistic about it, but whatever, like, there are ideas that become these dichotomous ideas, and we also become overly principled about small things, you know? Like, I think one of the, the terrible calumnies against us now is this flag controversy with the kneeling of the football players and people Mm -hmm. are like that flag means this to me and therefore you doing that means you did that right and like how many times did you just define the terms of that even if you go the other way right it's your flag it's my flag i want to kneel in front of it If you get offended that's entirely your problem right instead of saying like if i'm related to you wow if that hurts you that i did this or you're so hurt you want to kneel in front of something that means that much to me there's something to talk about and we need to see each other and be here, but you can't because the idea of your self-definition has destroyed that idea of humanizing the opposing party. Even if even the word opposing is wrong. It's humanizing the other person, you know, and that I think is just a real shitty thing to live through. Mm,
1: yeah, and we see it a ton in fandom too, right? Absolutely. Like, look <laughs> at the reactions to The Last Jedi, and totally. that's not my Skywalker, and yeah, it's yeah just yeah. things... Ra- you you really raped really my childhood? Yeah. Right, like that,
2: that terrible... Terrible phrase. I mean, the idea that you can't just say to someone, "Hey, that was a shitty version of a movie. I was expecting to be better, right?" (laughs) Just, just I I expected those movies to be better than they are, and they're bad, right? Yeah. And and you can just say, "Hey, but thanks a lot for everything else you did. You did a hell of a lot more for me than I did for you, right?" Yeah. And and instead say some these phrases like, "You raped my childhood," because I think, I think this is totally going out on a limb, but I think it's worth saying, and that is that. I think we've become really alienated from things that matter like community and belonging and loved, feeling loved by the people around us in a way that makes us feel secure. And so we get attached to these ideas outside of ourselves and we scream in this id-like way, you know, like in this deeply identified, not particularly grounded way. And I think when people say you rape my child, I remember when. Do you remember when people went to go see? You might be too young to do to remember this, but people were going to see Meet Joe Black to see the trailer of Phantom Menace. Do you remember this? Yeah, yeah. And so, and so, I remember the crowd was totally filled with like men and boys from you know eighteen to thirty, right? And it's a it's a it's ostensibly a romantic comedy about you know death come death, death takes a holiday, right. and. Right as the trailer with the Lucasfilm, da-da, da you know, that starts, the, this guy stands up and he throws his arms in and he goes, he goes, f*** me, Titanic! And everyone cheers. And I remember, like, I remember being like, that's kind of funny. But I was like, that man hates Titanic. Like, he hates Titanic, and he hates what Titanic stands for in terms of like what other people went and saw it for or what he thinks about the people who saw it, right? Like, I just remember going, that seems really like a weird thing to say for a movie you want to see, yeah. you know? <laughs> and, and I think there's something in that that's Adam. Atom- we're all atomized. Like, we're all kind of been turned into these tiny little pieces. And we're, we react with this id-like fury. Like, yeah, The Last Jedi, man. Like, no one even took time to process that movie. Right. There was just like online vitriol from the beginning. And we were in a culture, by the way, even the before it not. was released. Yes, yeah. totally. <laughs> so, or remember when it was it was, you know, very widely circulated before uh, The Force Awakens, that there would be a British African actor playing a stormtrooper. Right? right. And that he would be one of the leads of the movie. And there was this unbelievably backward medieval reaction to it, as if like, Black people have no purchase on the culture or right to be part of a culture that white people seem to have consumed without knowing there are people of color consuming it too, right? Yeah. Or that they exist in the world and, and and might exist in any human setting, right? And I just remember being like, this seems completely unhinged. Like, at, <laughs> at what level? At what level did a, a series of people you saw in white suits have a racial identity? that you could then controvertibly argue with our own, right? It's not even your, like, possession. And I don't know. I found that I found all that very weird.
1: Yeah. Yet, yeah, looking back, they were totally okay with the idea that, oh, every single one of them is from New Zealand because they're all clones of this one guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we don't but have a problem a with actor. that. <laughs> no, 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 it's
2: totally fine. It's yeah. a, but, but if, uh, God forbid, a, like a black-skinned man decides he doesn't want to be one.
1: Yeah. Yeah, okay. it's crazy. But I think... I don't think you're that far out on a limb to connect it to community because you're right. It's it's very individualistic and you're wrapping your identity up so much in the things that you enjoy consuming. And there is a huge disconnect from real relationship and real input from actual people. And taking into account what other people think and how other people would prefer to be treated and how you should react to other people and in the presence of other people. And it's just not all about like, well, I hate Titanic, so I'm going to stand up and shout in this theater and ruin everybody else's experience rather than, oh, wait, maybe I should think about this first, you know?
2: Or be a jester for a kind of id-like reaction about something you don't like. Yeah. Which, I mean, it's like, okay, like, I mean, there are so many things that are successful that I could say I don't particularly love, but I don't think I would go and stick my finger in the face of people and be like, you all suck because this is successful, and it ruins my day that you all made this big. (laughs) I I, I just, I don't don't know about that.
0: Yeah. And also, I think it also... why do you hate that thing have you taken the time to figure out why you hate it yeah right and yeah and, well that's introspection <laughs> yeah 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 if you had enough introspection to actually figure out why you hate it we could have a fascinating conversation about what titanic did to you emotionally right totally, totally. Yeah. but you're not willing to even go there you're yeah. just gonna yell at me about it so it's just one of those things where i think The community aspect of things means that you need to take time to understand other people. First of all, you need to take time to understand the idea that's creating or destroying you. And what's the idea that's creating or destroying them? And then to have a conversation about that 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 hopefully builds up as opposed to destroys or at least destroys the ideas that are really bad for us.
2: Yeah, Yeah, that's like mutualism, right? Like, that's the kind of, like, thing that is sort of falling away is that, oh, actually, we can do this together because that's how we get things done. As opposed to, like, I need to win and you need to concede to me that I won, you know? Exactly. Which I think is very, very difficult. Like, when you scream, kill Titanic, you're saying, I need this movie for my own identity. To earn more money than that movie did right and (laughs) and i I think it's like a very tenuous place to place one's needs and like you said the minute you actually talk about why you hate something right it's just strong emotional reaction to it you're gonna really delve into things about yourself that are wounded and hurt and if you're in a place where people like go hey man talk about that i totally i'm interested in listening to you talk about that and i'm not judging you I think we could so we could learn so much more about each other. I mean, please don't go on forever about it. But you know, like if we could talk to each other honestly, I think we would just be able to have a much more frank and useful world, you know, instead of this kind of id based irritation, annoyance, and hatred we seem to have towards people we don't even know or may not even exist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So
1: let's talk a little bit more about Cobb and specifically his relationship to Maul and how that affects him in the film. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously he is guilt-ridden yeah. from his experiences with Maul, from her suicide, and that informs what we see in the movie. It informs his dreams. So let's just talk a little bit about that. How do you feel about his guilt? Should he feel guilty? Do you think that's sabotaging what's going on in the story?
2: I think it's, well, a storyteller, it's an important engine, right? It's an important engine to drive the story so that he has this mission of his own that's sort of separate from the mission of the group and that conflict is why the story has a kind of tangible depth in the last act, right? Um, I think that his guilt is is born of his love for her and his inability to accept that he couldn't stop what she did, right? If it's real, which I think it is, or I think it, if, if you give the reality of the movie itself a um, purchase on your mind, then I think his guilt is tied in with his inability to control what happened in that moment. And I think it's one of the greatest moments in the movies when Leo reaches that depth where he goes, screams no, and runs at the window. And she jumps out the window because it is this kind of, he can't stop the runaway thinking in her head, right? So should he feel guilt? I don't know. I think let saying should there be a movie kind of, right? Like that's, <laughs> that's the engine. That's like a huge part of why he is who he is. And it's part of why he recruits all of us. And it's why he has to go back is that, he has to reach his kids, and he's like, this is this has driven me out of there. And you know, I think it's also a lot about being a cutting edge person. If you're any kind of person who's slightly reckless or slightly, you know, at the vanguard of something, sometimes things can go wrong. And he holds himself accountable because his happiness was destroyed, and the life of the person he prized the most was destroyed. And I, I don't know how you wouldn't feel something. I, I don't unless you're like, you know, as talented as the Buddha or Jesus or something. I, I don't know that you wouldn't feel something deeply up about being part of that process
1: yeah i definitely agree with you and he it's hard because he's stuck with this reality right mall's gone so there's no opportunity Mm -hmm. for reparation he can't apologize he can't repair the relationship um and you talk about the scene where he's running towards the window as she's jumping the more i watch the movie and i've watched it a lot (laughs) the, the more that scene interests me so much because at first you take it at face value like he's he's having a memory, right? Like this is how it played out when she died. But the more you watch it, she seems really, really vindictive mm. in that scene. You know, like yeah. she's hurt and she's suffering. But the more you watch it, the more real, you realize she seems like she knows what she's doing to him, which makes it seem like, okay, this is not the pure memory. This is... Well, I think
2: the strength of the acting, and this is probably Marianne's choice and Chris, you know, giving her the writing to do it, but Marion's one of the greatest actresses in the world. And the people who are great actresses, they're not actors and actresses, actors, let's just say for everyone. The reason they're great isn't just like, oh, they're really cool and they're pretty and they're, oh my God, they're really good. Like, that's not why they're great. Great actors are great because they make great choices. They choose how to play a scene in a way that maximizes it beyond even what you read on the page. That Mm -hmm. is the genius of acting. That's what a genius acting is. It's not about accents. It's not about like, playing people who are developmentally disabled it's even in those roles whatever they're playing great actors make great choices and the choice she makes in that scene which is a choice of pure genius is she's like no i'm not just a depressed woman who wants to jump out the window because i feel like no one believes me that's like the average choice the average actor does that the average actor does fine doing that and may or may not be appreciated for it oh my god you were so great the genius choice and this is why she is one of the greatest actors in the world she goes no idiot I have the answer and you are wrong do you understand mm. it's not been vind- i don't think of it as vindictive i think of it as like conviction on her part she's like this is what it is you can either accept it or you cannot accept it but i am going to go to the reality of the world and you're deluded right mm. that opposing point of view it makes it so much harder for him to stop her if his, if he's trying to stop her from being depressed that's just like some really weepy sort of hallmark movie If it's two people who have a very, very deep conviction about the reality, like this earlier, we're going back to the earlier part of this conversation, a really deeply convicted point of view about what the other person's delusions are, right? And one person is going to commit suicide and the other person is like, please don't do this, you're going to kill us both. That's a crazy, crazy dangerous place to be, right? The other thing, you know, I've learned this from my teachers that have taught me acting, the more dangerous emotional choice you can make The better the scene is going to be because all of us have our heart in our throat but you have to believe it yeah and the genius of that of those two actors and why i look up to them so much as performers is that they do believe it like they're a hundred percent there and they're laying it out you know home run after home run moment just like this is what it is here it is come with me or no come with me and that you know he he happens to be right i think and she is wrong and that's why she's dead but my God, like it's also the danger of these drugs and the date. Like it goes back to something we talked about a bit ago, like the danger of the idea of being completely subsumed into the subjective experience that's not a shared reality.
0: Yeah. One of the things I think that's really fascinating about it too is that choice on her part fits so well into the overall. Uh, narrative choice to say we don't actually know what's real. So is it real that yep. she was actually that angry? Or was it is Cobb remembering it that way because of his guilt? Or totally. is Cobb totally. living in a world of his own construction that says, Well, my wife had to be mad at me, I have to carry this guilt, but actually I'm the one that's escaping the real world and I'm still living in all the dreams. And she's actually out there operating in normal life, but I had to tell myself this story so I can keep doing this.
2: Yeah. I mean they could both be deluded, right? That's the the thing that's brilliant also about this movie, why people go back to it a lot, is that He does that thing Kubrick does. I don't think he does it the same way because I think they're very different people and different artists and he's younger than most of Kubrick's work was. But um, he erases the frame, right? He erases the context. So there's always moments that play out as these intense things where we understand the moment, but it's not being hammer framed down for you. Like there's a kind of floaty context of like, wait, whose point of view are we in right now? Right? In that Mm -hmm. particular scene, it almost flops, there's moments where you're in her point of view, like you're saying she seems like she's very intense. I think you use the word vindictive. I would use, use the word convicted. But she's really real, and she knows what she's saying, and her reality almost seems to tip it back towards herself, like she might be right, mm. right? And that is the power of the nebulousness and the amb- the dramatic ambiguity of great art. Mm. Like bad art is overly forcing you, like, see, she's crazy, right? She's right. crazy. Look at the crazy thing she did. Ah! Right? That's like <laughs> That's bad art. And great art, great storytelling as we come to this moment, right? And I got to tell you, given the fact that the movie's context is sometimes erased from the the mooring of it being absolutely certain, right? It makes that moment even more on ice. Like the whole room is on ice. And you're like, that could be her leaving and he's stuck here maybe? Like, wait a minute. Like that might make the whole thing the other way around, right? Exactly. And, And I think that is... What, like this is also why great filmmakers and great storytellers like Nabokov or or, or Fitzgerald are geniuses that you, if it goes that way it makes perfect sense if it goes this way it makes perfect sense it's ambiguous but on an axis it's not yeah. ambiguous because it's vague right it's ambiguous and its subtlety is clear but the ambiguity is about a very real notion it's not ambiguous because you know it could be anything it's not that either
1: yeah and that's I mean that's one of the the big reasons that I think Most people really, really love this movie, and maybe some people actually are very frustrated by it, is this this whole, the whole ambiguous nature, Um, you know, like, was the totem going to fall? Does it even matter because it wasn't his totem? Like, all these things, and even recently, there's been all this talk about, you know, something that Chris said to Michael Caine on, on set, and does that mean that that speaks to what's real and what's not? I love the ambiguous nature of it. I was just talking to somebody last night who she said, I really don't like that movie because I don't know what to think of it at the end. (laughs) And and, um, (laughs) one thing I wanted to ask you about to is I noticed several of the scenes in which Leonardo is talking with the other performers. He ends his sentences with the word, right? Almost as if he's asking a question, like he says, you know, our dream, it's only when we wake up from the dream that we realize something was weird, right? Yeah. And so is there anything to that? <laughs> is there a subtle I note think... that he doesn't know what's real and so he's no ending?
2: no no I think that's like people trying too much to make it all ambiguous and I think that's actually if you look at the character writing that that Chris did there in those lines it's his strategy as a leader great leaders do that they make you buy in by as if they're they're saying you you two agree with this statement a right so then we go to statement b and yeah. you two agree with statement b right. Because what he's trying to convince people of in those things, he's convincing the audience, right? And he's not just doing a lecture up there like, this is how it works. He does this very subtle form of leadership where he leads the audience and the cast into this reality that Chris Nolan has constructed that is – it is like a – it's like a a primer to a whole new game, right? This this is how the game works. You, You have two actions. The first action is you can play a card the second action is you can move your piece right like it's that it's that kind of thing and he's doing it where he goes so you know how like a black hole just attracts everything by gravity right like it's a positation to go well you go yeah and the minute you say yeah you've already agreed to the premise yeah you've so i in. think that so i think yeah it's an invitation it's buy-in and i think on a on a movie whose conceptual reality and up ramp is so fast i remember the first time i saw the first cut of it I was like you know that's an amazing amazing movie and i can't believe i'm in it but b i think chris has achieved the ferrari skidding at the edge of the cliff edge road uh level of information upload as as much and as fast as anyone can do in any movie and that's it like if people can follow this which i think most people did they have taken in a whole dream world a whole set of world building in the first 15 minutes of the most complex nature You know, and I I can't even imagine, like, think of something like Game of Thrones, who's it's a world, it's an awesome world, it's awesome, well-built, right? It's world building would take about three and a half minutes to explain, honestly, right? You're like, there's dragons, there's a bunch of kingdoms, they all fell apart, people were part of these other families, here are the list of families, here's the world we're dealing with, there's a little bit of magic, and there's a mystery as to who's going to be the king, right? You, You couldn't really even do that on a TV show like that, people would be like, I'm out, that's too much weirdness, right? <laughs> and this is so much more intense and specific and crazy, and he does it in this way that's so brilliant. And that's why I think the movie appeals is that he pays it all off, right? The other thing is whenever you ask an audience for that much buy-in, you go that far into this deeply unique and particular um, set of circumstances, right, that define this world. He pays it all off. It's like every card comes up in order at the end and he just at the end he finishes with the ace and it's done. It's just like he has done it perfectly. And and even at the end he does that thing with the wobbling top, and I'm like, even that he nails. So yeah. I, I just think he's masterful in how he pays that off and unfolds it, but he asks for a buy-in, and that's that's the subtlety of how he writes. I mean that's just brilliant writing.
1: Yeah. And he really he talks up to his audience, which is right. something that I really appreciate about him. That's what right. do you think, Jay, about Real versus not
0: real. <laughs> where, where do you sit well, on that so, spectrum? There's so much. I mean, there's so much to be said because I think I think uh, one of the things that really interests me is Mal's continued sabotage of his works. Yeah, and the reason why I, I don't think if I were to if I were to come to a conclusion about this film, I would say it is a film about the complexity of reality and do we ever really know what's truly real? Yeah, And I, th- I say that because I think my first watch ever, I go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just taking it a little bit more at face value. Meaning that the things that they're telling me are true about Cobb because he's the main character. I now believe them to be true. The way that he sees them. But upon the second, third, fourth, fifth watch, now I'm sitting here going, well, wait a minute. Why would Mal be sabotaging him Unless she's a social, it says, unless she's a construct in his mind that he believes he needs to be sabotaged. Yeah. Why would yeah, he need to right. be sabotaged? Because he's guilty. Oh, why is he guilty? Because he planted an idea. You know, <laughs> like so. So all of a sudden, you go interesting. Her view of reality, like, like Dalip has talked about already, and the actors bringing this to the roles and fully embracing the ambiguity in them, <laughs> in their characters and what their characters believe. Maybe not the ambiguity of what they believe, but the for sure what they believe. Even though that might not be actual reality,
2: I think it's ambiguous it's it's to us sometimes. I think what, what you're pointing to yes. when you just said that that conversation that quick uh, awesome insight about like how that goes back to this goes back to that. It's like I think of it sometimes as like a, he clicks off a domino right, and they all fall like in a row perfectly. But then. You look back and you think it's a mirror and the dominoes are falling backwards. You're like, no, no, the dominoes do go the other way. Like they do fall the other way too, right? They don't have to fall exactly. to the left. They can fall to the right. And that falling action is the thing that makes the movie work. It's not the direction that makes it work. So like when you start working back into it – and this is also what – you know. look, Chris Nolan's Chris Nolan for a reason and his writing is so – dense and so smart and so perfectly like the pieces always fit you know and they're uniquely made and they perfectly fit and that movie is a intricately woven gearbox of a thousand unique pieces running in a machine of its own design and it does work backwards and forwards it has a gear that's moving constantly forward there's an emotional gear that's going backwards because he's remembering and there's also this penetrative layer by layer plot process that he lays out that like makes the movie have an engine that's totally like a James Bond movie. Right. And that, that part is also a huge part of what he's doing. And like, you know, I don't know anyone that tries to lift those three things at once and successfully does it. So it is an incredible (laughs) achievement on, on his part. You know, I, I've always thought that his, his ability to make those various ideas that are unique, they're new ideas. Many of them uh, work in a world. That's also going to still feel familiar and real to us is, it's an achievement for the ages in some ways. And I think he's done it more than once. You know, I think the prestige works that way. I think memento works that way. Mm -hmm. And I think he has his finger on that pulse where he can take us into the extraordinary and even things that aren't particularly functionally real to us. He can make them real by fusing them with reality. I think the Batman movies work for that reason. And I think they, they, they posited themselves in in a world where Batman had gone back to camp at the end of its last run. And people were kind of, I don't know over it, and, and it was a little suffused with too much. Um, I don't know, like uh, it, it was too fatuous in a way, right? And mm. what what he came with was a kind of fusing a man into a reality where he would have to become Batman, mm. and that and that was like totally novel, super interesting. It, it rested on some ground we've seen before, you know, Western man trains in the East is chased by his Eastern master. And his eastern master turns out to be another white guy and they all fight in the streets but he becomes the good guy right and that was amazing and the dark knight was a work of pure artistic invention it was brilliant a brilliant movie and he does it there too you know he has a phenomenal performance in the center of it like a great performance throughout all that series but you know that performance by ledger is one of the greatest of all time and it's in a comic book film it's amazing and he gives that he gives that context to let actors do that and he also gets great casts and demands the best from them, and they all produce. So I, I think it's a tribute to him.
1: Yeah, for sure. There's a, there's one question that Jay wrote here that I really want to get to because I like it a lot. Mm. Would you trust Cobb as a leader, and do you trust him as the person we're relying on to understand what's really going on in this story?
2: The qu- only question I have for you is, do you mean you, delete or you, Youssef? Um...
1: <laughs> I guess it's different for yeah both. Ways, I guess the maybe. first half of it is you, Yusef, and the other half is you, Daleep.
2: <laughs> so let's take the so so read the second half, half in a second. The first half does Yusef trust him? Yes, because Yusef made a deal with him. Um, I, I made I have a side deal with him to get paid off for it. So yeah, I mm-hmm. trust him. Um, I think that there's a certain amount of sincerity in him and desperation in him that I think Yusef understands as. as um, motivators of human reason but i also think he's wary of the man and thinks he's a bit dangerous but i mean a lot of leaders are somewhat dangerous right they, yeah. i think there's a great line where when ken says i knew a man once who was possessed of some dangerous notions right yeah and mm-hmm. i think that that makes him inspiring and also scary and i think that for someone like Yusuf, the scary is scary and the inspiring is inspiring and he's gonna follow the former while keeping an eye on the latter yeah what was the second half of the question that was for me do you trust him as the person that we're
1: relying on to understand what's really happening in the story?
2: I don't think you should ever do that with a, with a central character in any movie, unless it's like you know Chaplin, which in which case he's just experiencing like uh, um, a childlike experience of what's happening around him most of the time. But um, no, I don't think you could trust him as the as the reliable narrator. I think sometimes he's not. He, he clearly is hiding a different intention for most of the team that I have always assumed when we talked about it, that that he definitely told me there's something up, but he wants to pay me off to do his own thing, and I'm not going to look too closely. So I I think he's on his face kind of not believable. You know, I think he is credible for what he's trying to do, and the characters are credulous towards what he's trying to do. But the whole second half of the second act and the entire third act is about he's deviating from that. And I think that the selfishness of that is is real and i think that's that's human that's what makes him human and not um a two-dimensional cutout you know
1: yeah
0: i think what makes christopher nolan christopher nolan is the fact that he leans into that lack of trust that we should have like we we should be sympathetic for him and still distrust him totally right yeah and that's what's so interesting because so many filmmakers would not do that so many filmmakers would say this is this person's story and I need the audience to trust them so that they will care about them and Chris Nolan goes I'm gonna have you trust him and you're not gonna trust or sorry I'm not gonna have you I'm gonna have you care about him and you're not gonna trust him whatsoever <laughs> yeah which is well, what
1: the other characters in the movie do right right like, if you really right.
0: look at it Arthur doesn't
1: trust him Ariadne doesn't trust him right. Eames doesn't trust him but they love him but they love him yeah exactly
2: yeah I think that part of that makes it much more like grown-ups yeah yep. like I, I think that like what 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 is refreshing about his movies is the people in it are grown-ups and grown-ups even in your most intimate relationship you can trust a person like when you trust a person you trust them right and then the extra nth percent is just what your unconditional love guarantees you'll trust them right beyond reason and that's what makes family that's what makes it possible to build something like a family with children and all that and part of what he's saying is don't forget this is who people are <laughs> people are flawed and they're weird and they have these weird ripples in their brains and beings and their fear centers and their guilt centers and what they're driven by and they're not they're just they're not um they're not luke skywalker they're han solo right and that's i think of Cobb as more like if you explored han solo's brain he's a little more like that like where he's like and don't, don't look too closely at what's underneath the uh, the shipping container <laughs> you know yeah and i think with Cobb, you don't want to look too closely at like what is motivating him because it's a lot of pain and it could it could you know it could go the wrong way. And they kind of, I think, all know that.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I got one more question for us here, and I think this is kind of a good way to maybe put a bow on all of this. But Great. When they are determining exactly how to perform the inception on Robert Fisher, yeah. Cobb says that it needs to be something positive. It can't be yeah. negative. And he says, we all yearn for reconciliation and for catharsis. So let's talk a little bit about that, about how it affects the story? How do you see that being true or not true in your own life?
2: Uh, the story part first. Um, well, first of all, that's just a restatement of Greek theater uh, <laughs> um, theory, right? Like that you, you're all looking for catharsis. And catharsis is what's supposed to happen in the audience when the emotional arc is correctly presented on stage, right? That's the theory of Greek drama. And it is, it is without a doubt true, right? We want to reach a threshold of... Where we are credibly able to lower our defenses and subsume ourselves by suspending our disbelief into the cathartic action of the payoff in the, in the story, then allows us to have an emotional release we wouldn't allow ourselves in everyday life. That's why we actually listen to stories, right? And as a lot what we talked about earlier about like the adult who's running around trying to, you know, survive a fear-driven world. And I I think that the positive idea in Fisher's mind is it has to be put in place in a way that he would want to do it himself. That's what he says. And I, that, and I read that in the script, I was like, that is brilliant Mm. because, um, there's two things that said to me, first of all, just on on a realistic level, it's like when you think the idea is yours and you're going to do something good, you're going to do a lot to get that done. You're not going to work as hard just to hurt something, right? It just, it's too impoverishing and the payoff is usually diminished. Right. Um, But the other thing is I was also reminded of something I learned in acting through my life and from a teacher I had in particular, that you need to make what he called the positive choice, which is that you have to choose to include the other actor. You have to include the circumstances. Your choices have to be credible with the world and choose to need the other actor. Otherwise, you can't get what you want, right? And And in that way, I think he's right in that if Fisher doesn't have a mission that helps him include his father, help him include his life into it, it doesn't feel like it's in concert with the way the world is gonna be for him, right? It would be in opposition to the way the the world is gonna be for him. And that's a lot harder to register as a motivation and to fulfill. It's just on a technical level, they want him to break up the company. And like that is not as appealing if he's just doing it to like go against someone. If he's doing it to be his own man, that's something else. And I think there's something um, about pride there, his father's pride in him and his own pride in himself. It's not about hubris, but just genuine self-possession. And I do think that is brilliant. It's a self It's When people talk about Chris, like, you know, I've often heard of his criticism. Often, sometimes you his criticism that, you know, Chris's movies are cold or they're unemotional. I think what they mean is that they're not cheaply emotional and they're not, like, filled with a bunch of melodrama. It's all this, you know, every movie can have melodrama in it. But mm-hmm. I think it's that he has these really subtle things that are positive, that are deeply filled with love and, and positivity but they're real you know they're not they're not um big paintings on the wall you know and and that moment where he says it needs to be something positive i think that he's speaking from his own familial life and his own raising of his children and and he's like it has to be something that embraces that and i i do think that comes from uh you know chris as well i think it comes from chris's sense of like yes it's, it's important to stand up for something you know and it's important to be in concert with what's good and yeah, that's not a cheap cheap thing i think that's not a small thing i think it's a huge thing you know
1: yeah i think it's definitely true in in life i think about it in terms of of family as well like i think about my father and growing up with him and you know no no father-son relationship is perfect there's ripples and there's speed bumps and there's negativity and there's positivity but none of the negativity that I've experienced in my relationship with my father can ever overshadow the fact that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that my father loves me and always loved me. Mm. And yeah. that is what I hope my sons grow up feeling. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> yeah. I may be a dick. I may be overly critical. I may get too mad. But at the end of the day, there's a positive thought that supersedes all of that.
0: Mm. That's really good. Yeah, I think that there is right. also a really interesting dichotomy in his statement. We all yearn for reconciliation, for catharsis, which are not the same things. <laughs> uh, it can be very cathartic to see the punisher blow someone's head off because they deserved they deserved it. They deserve punishment, if you will. But that's not there's no such thing as reconciliation in that respect in that regard, right? So, I think part of it for me that's interesting about Cobb is that he is a such a complex character and he's working through his own problem in such a complex way that he does yearn for reconciliation, but sometimes he's just seeking catharsis in, in the moment maybe. So even saying that I think is really fascinating because I think that there are some times when we want catharsis without reconciliation, but what we always really yearn for is technically what Dalib talked about in the beginning is reconciliation and community to have real discussions and to have people who love us despite our flaws. Yeah. And I just think that's a really fascinating concept. um, And I think it's just pulled off really well here.
2: So, Yeah. yeah, I would just, I would add to that last bit. I would say like, you know, part of what we, the catharsis, I think just to bring it back out to what we're saying about society or our own personal selves is that the catharsis we want is we want to be seen we want our struggles to be seen, our ideas to be at least valued in a moment where we're talking about them, and for us to have purchase on each other's best selves, right? Mm. And, and what seems to have taken over our lives in this country is that we're having this angry, corrosive conversation with versions of each other, but not each other, like maybe non-existent versions of each other, and being very angry and not having purchase on each other, and we're not feeling seen because there's nobody there. Right, There's, we're not seeing each other because you're talking, you're yelling at a ghost of someone that's a straw, you know, straw man on TV or online or in social media, and we're not connected, we're not being seen. And part of, part of what that even that notion that Cobb says is that we long for reconciliation. I think we all want to be valued, and we all want to belong. And if we felt like we belonged to our communities, each other, and had value to each other when we spoke and were treated each other with well, that would also have value. I think a lot of this garbage that we argue about as if it was so, so, so important would fade. I think people want to be respected and seen. And, and that's why I make art. It's why I'm an artist is that I love connecting to other artists and other actors. And I love connecting to an audience, whether it's on a stage or, you know, at a reading or writing something someone reads or, or being in a movie that comes out after I've done my work and see people see it. I, I love that that concept that we can reach each other through our common humanity. And we can really see each other and in art you can see yourself and other people. That's the whole point of it. And, um, that's the positive choice. I hope we can all try to make more and more with each other.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I don't think there's a more beautiful place to end this conversation than that. (laughs) Awesome. Um, Dalip. thank you for joining us today.
2: My great pleasure guys. Good luck with everything. And, uh, it was really fun.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And for those of you listening, um, uh, be sure to check us out on Patreon and check out the Aftercast because we're going to spend a little bit more time with Deleep and interview him specifically on his experience on this film and other films. So you don't want to miss that. Well, that's it for today's show. Special thanks to Deleep Rao for joining us. What a pleasure it was to talk to him today and get a bit of a glimpse inside Inception. Um, uh, coming up next week on the show, again, we're going to be talking about Halloween. We're going to be celebrating the best Halloween moments in geekdom with Justin Weaver and Sandra Demas. So don't forget to subscribe so you can celebrate Halloween with us.
0: Yeah. Also, head over to thestorygeeks.com where you can find our Aftercast, where we actually talk to Dilip about multiple movies that he's done, geek movies, which is really, really fun. Daryl did a great job of interviewing him for that. Um, and we're making that as normally premium content to get access to the Aftercast. But because we love you guys and we want you to have access to stuff, we're giving that free for a week. We'd love for you to become a supporter, but if you're not, you can get access to that free for a week. And also, you can hear some thoughts on Inception from Ashley Pauls and Anthony Holder all over at thestorygeeks.com. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to our email list. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and as I mentioned, we really do appreciate it when you become a premium subscriber. Through our patreon account and as a reward you get access to things like our aftercast or writer's commentary or audiobooks that we're working on so please go check that out you can find all that information at thestorygeeks.com but you can subscribe at multiple tiers have your opinion read a lot of cool rewards so please go over to thestorygeeks.com and then check out our patreon account
1: yeah and please let people know about our show if you enjoy what we do tell somebody about it share it with a geek friend send them to thestorygeeks.com and let them check stuff out and help us spread
0: the word. Yeah, and the, the actual link to all of those things that you want to check out are in the show notes. Thanks for listening in, and as always, question everything in your favorite geek stories. And always seek the truth.